Hey fam, welcome back to our coverage of Western States Week. This is the audio from our third annual pre-race live interview show that I co-host with Corinne Malcolm from the heart of Olympic Valley. This is the morning session from Friday, June 23rd, our third of three sessions ahead of the 50th Western States taking place on Saturday. Today's guests include Katie Asmuth, Matthew Blanchard, Megan Morgan, Nico Mermood, Leah Yingling, and of course, the annual analysis and prognostication session this year with myself, Corinne, 2022 champion Adam Peterman, and I Run Far editor-in-chief Megan Hicks will play all six interviews back to back to back. Hope you enjoy the show. Okay, we are back. Good morning, everybody from Olympic Valley. We are less than 24 hours removed from the 2023 Western States 100, the 50th Western States. What a celebration. What a beautiful morning. My name is Dylan Bowman, joined by Corinne Malcolm. Corinne, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I am caffeinated. Thank goodness. Did you get some sleep last night? I tried, but I think sleep is going to come Sunday. It's like that whole no sleep till Auburn situation, I think, is, just, is for more than just the runners. Oh, I got to pause my uh, computer here. Anyway, we are joined by Katie Asmith, two-time finisher here for her third try at Western States. We'll get to her in just a second. Before we do that, a big thank you to Hoka. <laughs> We had a little chair mishap here for those who are watching us live online. Try the next one. Welcome yeah. to our, our in-person in audience here. And uh, as I was saying, we are presented by Hoka. Big thank you to Hoka for their support of the Western States 100, their support of the live broadcast, which will be 30 hours starting at 4.15 a.m. tomorrow. They're also supporters of our pre-race live interview show, our third annual with that preamble, Katie Asmith, welcome back to Olympic Valley. You came into town last night. How does it feel to be back? Oh, man. Am I on here? Yeah, I place. feel so lucky to be here. I mean, uh, yes, it feels so good, you guys. I, it's, been a, it's been a year, uh, and it's been a year for so many of us. But, um, yeah, it's been quite a year after surgery and a torn hamstring and lots of sickness and sutures and the whole thing. Uh, so to be able to start uh, to toe the line tomorrow morning, bright and early, uh, healthy is like a dream come true. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Okay, so I've got a question about injury in this last year. We talked, I think, during the initial injury and your recovery time period about how you're not an inherently patient person. And that the initial injury, I think, had to teach a lot of patience. And then I think hopefully that provided a lot of grace and grit to get through everything else you've been through this spring. But I do think that that patience could pay off in a big way tomorrow. And I'm wondering, you know, what you've taken from this entire last year of ups and downs that you're going to bring with you out onto the race course. Yeah, I think patience is key in this race. Uh, as we all know, I actually talked, talked with Joe Yuhan yesterday, who wrote The Killing Machine with Iron Farr. Two parts, read them both. Um, so this whole idea, especially in this course, you have to be patient out there. And I think, uh, especially with the snow, I'm going to handle this day like I know the course. I know what can do to you by the end. I also know 
that this is a different day. I mean, it's a completely different course. And, and it's exciting to me because the last two years have been so hot and so depleting. I will be depleted. I'm going to give it my all. I know that very clearly. But I also know that um, it's just going to be a different tempo all day. It's going to be a different kind of a, um, a style of racing. So I'm excited to see uh, what my body will do out there. I'm, I'm curious yeah. <laughs> uh, and a little uncertain. Um, and But patience is always key for me in this race. I also want to be a part of it. Um, I don't want to be too far back that I can't be able to play in the front. Um, maybe not the front front, but like play around. <laughs> uh, just to feel like I want to be a part of the day um, in the lead pack would be a, a big, you know, day for me. So we'll see, we'll see how it folds out. But I, I'm really excited to see where the day will bring. Yeah, I think there's a lot of unknowns. Yeah. yeah. That's why they run the race. Yeah. Two years ago, you were one of the stories of the Western States 100. Corinne and I became enormous fans of yours. We've since become dear friends, and it was all because of your brave, amazing performance in, in 2021. You were in podium contention most of the day, eventually finished fifth. Last year, you suffered to a proud ninth place performance here. Maybe just reflect on those two experiences and what you've learned that you'll apply for 2023. Sure, I've said it several times now that I'm terrified uh, because this race just like chews you up and like throws you out but I do think it's going to be a different day like I said like hopefully I'm not peeing coca-cola by the end of the day you know like maybe it won't be as hot though it's feeling kind of hot right now we'll see um, so I you know I don't know I what I what I learned is that I can go really deep and that I'm really good at suffering and that when I want something, I really try and get it. <laughs> uh, so I definitely have a big heart. Um, I really care about this sport. I really care about this race. Uh, I care about the people in it. I'm really, uh, just really like a passionate person when it comes to Western States. And I know also that, you know, these, these days are limited. Like I'm not gonna be running Western States for forever. This could be my last Western States. I sure hope not, you know, I really hope that I get to keep coming back, but this is, you know, these are really precious days and I'm gonna run it out there like it's my last and I hope it's not. Um, yeah, but I'm, that's my, what I've learned the last two years is how much I care about it and that this sport, this race is worth fighting for and it's, uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like you find a part of yourself you didn't know until you're deep in that, whatever pain cave whatever you want to call it you're deep in that zone um you know you can't really get there in a lot of other times in life it's a very special unique thing and uh i, I think it's a privilege to be able to you know tow that start line and be able to like see what you're made of yeah yeah so i think it was probably a little over a week ago during a free trail office hours or something of that effect where you're like i'm so scared and you have to tell me when i get on stage with you guys on friday that i'm no longer scared so where are we on the terrified to fearful scale right yeah. now <laughs> uh you know honestly i i think i'm more just like happy okay. I, you know i'm just like i'm here like i made it i'm, I'm excited i of course, I think there's a little part of fear. I hope everybody has a little bit of fear because this sport really humbles you and you really gotta go in you know, with that humility in mind. But um, yeah, I, the last couple of weeks I've been very scared. Like, oh, oh God, I don't know if I can get to those depths again. Um, 
I'm sort of hoping if it's not going to be, you know, over 100 degrees, it might not be as like depleting in that sense. Um, I've really had issues with my sodium electrolyte <laughs> hydration, uh, too much, too little. Uh, the last two years, so I'm really hoping this year's just right. <laughs> Third time's a um, charm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say a few more words about fear, because I think it's something that a lot of people who step to the start line of 100 miles can relate with. And when they see an athlete of your level, also knowing that you're carrying a similar fear, I think that's maybe freeing for the majority of trail and ultra runners out there. How do you deal with fear? How do you build confidence that you are capable of this? I think it's irrational ego, confidence. Uh, I mean, how do any of us do this? I don't know. <laughs> I think we put in the time. I think all of us work really hard to be able to, you know, but I think there's a lot of trust that comes with trusting our coach, trusting our bodies, trusting our team, our pacers, our partners. Um, and I think it, it takes a village to get there. And I think there's a lot of trust that goes into the whole experience that it's not, you're not alone in it. Um, but. Yeah, I think that's why we sign up for it, is to be really challenged and to like go into the unknown and the uncertainty of it all. If we knew what was going to happen, it wouldn't be fun, you know? Like, that's, that's the point. That's why we're here. Yeah, that's sport. Yeah, it yeah. is sport. I think when I, when I like reflect on your like Western States journey, you've loved this race before you ever ran this race. You've been coming to training camp since before you were able to get into it. I'm like, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that, about your love for Western states and the Western states community, because I do think that that is such a huge draw. We got to talk to Casey Liktag yesterday. She clearly loves this race and this community. So tell us a little bit about your your long time, long term relationship with Western states. Okay, well, um, when I started running trails, uh, I learned about Western states quite early on in that process. And I mean, I was like such a sponge. I wanted to learn from every trail runner, every ultra runner, but I was like cutting out ultra running magazine clips and have this whole binder full of like, I was definitely a student of the, of, of trail. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, also, you know, I was like a big fan of just like trail runner nation podcasts and do, like just all the, the, like I was so into podcasts. I was so into like learning from other people and wanted to know more. And it was very clear from the very beginning that Western States was the epitome of our sport. Um, and so I wanted to be here. I want to be a part of it, you know, like, uh, so yeah, I started going to Western States training camp because I wanted to like see what Forest Hill looked like, you know, I wanted to like actually run on the footsteps that have the hundred in them that, you know, near Roby Point. I wanted to like understand all these little nuances of what this day is. And, um, and you know, I was thinking a lot about, it's not just the day, it's, it's the whole year and all the golden ticket races that like, like, you know, that builds up to, to this day. And, um, you know, the trail work that goes into it and the, the community like response to everything that happened with the fires. And it's just like, you feel so invested in the, in the day itself. And, and now that it's finally here, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's not just one day, but it, it's really, it permeates through the culture of our sport um, in so many big ways. And yeah, it feels really, feel really like a privilege to be a part of this. And honestly, feels like I made it, right? Like to be up here with you guys, third time. Like this is awesome, you know? Like this is awesome. I'm so happy to be here, it's very cool. Continuing to build on this love, you said just a second ago that you're good at suffering. And if we haven't mentioned it yet, in last year's Western States, you actually broke your foot and still yeah. finished in the top 10. 
you and I are friends, so I've been able to have a front row seat to your recovery. And I think one of the things that myself and a lot of people admire about you is your positive attitude and your discipline and your love, right? And I wondered if you'd say a few words about like recovering from that injury and like how maintaining a positive attitude and how like the love of the game, love of the sport helped to get you back here healthy and ready to race for the third time. Yeah, I think it'd be easy to say every time I was like spinning for hours and hours and on the elliptical doing these like hard workouts that I was thinking about just trying to get back to Western States. And sure, like how can you not, right? Like that was the ultimate goal was to get here. Um, but I really have uh, loved the process. And I think that's a big part of this sport is you can't, if there's just one race you're going for and something happens, you don't, you're not, it doesn't, you don't have the day you wanted. You weren't able to tell the line, whatever. I just feel like then that can be so um, just sad, you know? And, and I feel like if you don't love the process getting there, then that, that, that takes away a lot from the sport. So for me, I really have enjoyed every training run, every, like, you know, really never take a run for granted, never take a step for granted, people. I mean, honestly, it's, it sucks when you can't do the thing you love. And um, so I really, I really loved just the process in getting here and hoping that it would actually come to fruition, and it has, which is very cool. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, Katie, on behalf of Corinne and myself, we can't wait to watch you race again. Go pick up that F9 bib and enjoy every step of the journey tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Big round of applause for Katie Asmith. Okay, we are back with a two-time podium finisher at the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, all the way from France, Mr. Mathieu Blanchard. Mathieu, welcome to the United States of America. Welcome to the Western States 100. How's it feel to be here? Thank you, Dylan. Uh, uh, good morning, Dylan. Good morning, Corinne. I feel uh, very good. Still one month here, so now uh, we are ready to, to maybe uh, run um, <laughs> a distance tomorrow, and I'm very happy to be here with you. So when you ended up in that amazing second place finish, that close second place finish at UTMB, that came with a golden ticket. And it felt like, on my side anyway, maybe like it wasn't 100% certain that you were going to take the golden ticket to come run Western States. There's more left unfinished at UTMB. I know I on the prize on that first, like the top of the podium there. So like, tell us a little bit about making the decision to take the golden ticket to commit to Western States for this year. Yeah, Western States is one of the most difficult races to get in in the world with uh, Hard Rock maybe. And uh, I already got the golden ticket in 2021 when uh, I did my first podium on UTMB. I, I uh, finished third. And uh, if I remember well, Francois didn't take it, so it went to me. And um, I discussed with my uh, partner and uh, I took the decision that I should run another time UTMB uh, in 2022. This, this is why I didn't take the golden ticket. But when I get it a second time, I was like, okay, Matt, you are, get, you are trying Western State for four years in the lottery. It's very difficult, and uh, getting a golden ticket is a great opportunity. And um, I'm um, a young all runner. I mean, uh, I started uh, running with you in 2017, so not a long time ago, but I'm already 35 years old. So if I want to run all the biggest races in the world at my highest level, I, I, I have to go, uh, I had to go to uh, Western State uh, in this year to try something. So you arrived here in the U.S. just before the Western States Memorial Day training camp. We saw each other there. Curious just to hear what you've been up to, how you've enjoyed your time here in the U.S., and how you've trained specifically for the demands of Western States. 
Yeah, I did a special year this year. It was uh, all um, connected to uh, Western State. I started, actually, I had two big goals. Uh, it was to, to learn to run fast on flat and uh, to be able to run uh, in uh, hot uh, conditions. So I started my uh, season uh, running on the track uh, in Montreal uh, during winter inside track for one month. Then uh, I went to Costa Rica, the Coastal Challenge, for a big volume uh, in the heat and uh, uh, humidity. Then uh, I went to uh, Kenya for a training camp to learn how, how the best in the world run fast and flat, and now I know. So then um, I went on the Paris Marathon to check if uh, I had improved my level, and it was not too bad. Uh, and then I went to the Marathon des Sables in the Sahara Desert to finish this uh, uh, heat uh, protocol. But uh, it seems that it won't be uh, as hot as planned. So we'll see. And um, yeah, I'm uh, very happy to be here. And uh, I finished the preparation one month in the US with the Memorial Weekend. It started with the Memorial Weekend. And the, week after, the weekend after the Memorial Weekend, I did for another... Uh, Memorial Weekend, but alone, uh, and I did it in two days, so it was a huge volume. That's pretty impressive prep, and I know like what stood out to me when I was looking kind of over what you've run this spring was your experience over at Marathon de Saab. Like it's a big stage race in the desert. It's a big volume block. It's it's generally very hot. It's sandy, which we don't have here so much. But tell us a little bit more about making the decision to do two different stage races in the prep. Is that volume? Is that competition? Is that specificity? Like I think that's a really curious and really thoughtful approach to Western states. Actually, I don't know if it's good or not. Uh, I like to say that for me, uh, the preparation uh, at the Ultra Trail races are experimental and every year I do a different preparation. Even for UTMB, I did it uh, three times and my three preparations were different. So for me, it's experimental. I don't know if it's good or not to do these stage, stages races. Um, and yeah, the goal was to run a big volume and uh, for me, it's easier to run big volume when you are in a race than alone. And uh, you can push a little bit more the pace when you are in the stage races than alone. So yeah, I, it was not my, fr my first experiences in the stage uh, races. And uh, I knew that the, the year before when I did it, a um, few weeks after the, the stage races, I felt very, very good. So this is why I did it. And for sure, I choose uh, these hot races because I, the, the plan was to go to Western States. So talking about the people that are going to be supporting you tomorrow, your friend Marianne Hogan, last year's third place finisher in the women's field, I know is going to be on your crew. I know your team manager, Vincent Viette from Solomon, he uh, was seventh here last year. Curious what they've told you about the race, any advice they've given you that's stuck with you and how uh, you might be able to capitalize on that advice. Yes, Vincent, the team manager of Salomon, ran it uh, last year, and uh, Marianne Hogan as well ran it last year, so I had the best uh, people around me to give me the best advices, and the, the, the only one I, uh, I, uh, I want to keep in my head is uh, you, can, um, you can lose the race in the first climb. So this is just what I want to repeat <laughs> in myself at the start line. Uh, and then, yeah, I will have my uh, girlfriend, Alex, which is, who is the best at the aid station. We are able to be uh, very uh, fast and connected. Uh, we don't have to speak that much, just uh, scan my body, my face, and uh, she knows exactly, exactly what to do with me at the aid station. So uh, I saw some videos of the Western States uh, of the previous year, and I, th I see that it's pretty fast at the aid station, so we will try to be fast with this team. And uh, yeah, I'm very uh, confident that they will be uh, good and maybe the best for me uh, for this race. 
Yeah, so you said that, you know, you spent a lot of time prepping for the heat specifically for this, but it, it looks like we're going to have a cooler day. We've had a cooler week for sure. I guess in my mind, what do you think then is maybe the the next biggest challenge for you on the race day if heat might not be such a big factor? Actually, the weather forecast I saw, uh, sorry, it's in Celsius, but I saw in Auburn uh, and Forest Hill, it's around 25 degrees Celsius. So for sure, it will be up to 30, maybe more. Uh, in the canyons, it's so it's still warm, it's yeah. still warm, and even 25 degrees Celsius, uh, when you push the pace, it's hot, so for sure all this preparation uh, will be useful uh, for all the, the people who did it, And uh, but yeah, as it will be uh, colder than usual, it's difficult to predict uh, the time uh, for the finish, and uh, I did actually, it's the first time um, I didn't make um, uh, time sheets uh, for the for the aid station, actually, I will just go with the flow, because with the snow at the first uh, 30, 40 miles, you don't know the pace you will have, so I don't have to 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 be on the time sheet, and uh, we don't know if the snow will uh, slow us enough uh, to uh, to be uh, fast at the finish line with the colder uh, conditions. I don't know what uh, what will be uh, the race, but I know that. Uh, I think uh, Jim, when he did the, the, the course record, it was pretty snowy at the beginning and pretty cool after. So it was kind of similar uh, uh, conditions. And uh, yeah, it's open uh, to have a, a good and fast race. Amazing. So going back to your second place at UTMB last year, those who watched the coverage will remember that you and Killian just had one of the most incredible bat battles in ultra running history. I'm curious how you think about the competitive aspect there and like the the thought of like fighting at the end of races and how important that's going to be tomorrow. Yeah, it's the first time uh, I have this kind this kind of uh, experience uh, running with someone uh, till the end of the uh, almost till the end of the race, and uh, I felt that you can uh, transcend uh, yourself. You can find some magical energy uh, inside you when you are able to compete with someone uh, till the end. So. Um, I uh, learned it, I learned it, and uh, maybe I want to to be uh, in the, this uh, condition again, again to be uh, not alone, but with someone to fight with until the end, because now I know that uh, you can transcend yourself and it can help you to push uh, somewhere you, don't, you never know uh, to this finish line. So I know with UTMB, it became kind of a project, right? You were there three times, steadily kind of climbing your way up in the field, and from a time perspective, improving year over year. With this being your first Western States, you know, we can't predict too much. I'm excited to see what happens tomorrow. I think we all are. Um, I'm wondering if tomorrow is not the perfect storybook ending. Can we anticipate Western States becoming a, a project for you? Yeah, uh, as I said, it's very difficult to get in Western State, and I think when you, if you are lucky enough to finish in the top 10, uh, you consider the idea to uh, come back because all these golden ticket races are so competitive so that you never know if you will be able to qualify. So for sure, if I have, I'm lucky enough to finish top 10, I will uh, consider it uh, to come back because I spoke with the old guy of, um, of the Western State at the Memorial Weekend and they all told me that, you know, Western State, it's like UTMB, it's a long time project. And uh, usually the first time you get, you, it's, it can be very difficult. You have to understand how to run this race because it's very uh, specific compared to other races. So I uh, guess I have it uh, in my mind. Uh, we'll see what will happen, but it's open that I will come back uh, next year if I'm lucky enough to finish top 10.
Beautiful. Well, Matthew, it's great to have you here at Western States. It's great to have you racing in America. We wish you nothing but good luck tomorrow. Enjoy the journey. Big round of applause for Matthew. Thank you, guys. Okay, we are back here, like I said, with one of the young breakout stars of the sport here in North America, Megan Morgan from Boulder, Colorado. Megan, maybe just quickly first introduce yourself for people who are unfamiliar with you and your story. Tell, tell us how you got into the sport, to this amazing community. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dylan and Corinne. Um, my name is Meg Morgan. I'm a 25-year-old living outside of Boulder, Colorado. I grew up on the East Coast in Boston, and I I've always been a runner, um, but got into trails and ultras kind of around COVID, running up in um, the White Mountains of New Hampshire with my friends and exploring all the awesome classic routes up there. And eventually my path led me out to Boulder where I got sucked into the amazing ultra community there and that just fostered the interest in the sport even more. Yeah, you had a number of close calls when it came to golden tickets. And I think it was a, there were some like exciting starts at races and then some kind of like hold on style finishes. And then we were both at Black Canyon and got to watch you just put together and like a stellar day, like a, be a beautiful race, finishing third, getting that golden ticket um, behind Heather and Keeley. I guess talk a little bit about coming into that race. And it, in my mind, it was like a, we knew, we like, you were on our radar, but it was a breakout moment. And just talk a little bit about like that momentum coming out of that race. Yeah, definitely. Of course, over the last year and really getting into the sport, it's been a whole learning process and really taking as much as I can from every race. And it was really awesome for me to have that Black Canyon race where everything I learned really came together. Um, and I was able to actually practice everything that I was slowly putting together. Um, and it really gave me a lot of confidence. One, it was a really stacked field. I, I knew I was fit, but I was, didn't know how I was gonna play out compared to the other women out there. So having a race that one really went as planned, even better as planned, and then was also a race that went very well against other competitive women, just really did a lot for my confidence and showed me that if I follow my plan, if I keep doing what I'm doing, then I can put myself in a really good spot moving forward. Was there any hesitation in accepting that ticket? I think you did so on the spot. Were you there expressly to try and earn your spot here at Western States? I was, yes. Yeah, I definitely wanted to take the ticket at Black Canyon. It was my number one goal, and I, that also made me super nervous for the race because I was like, I really, really want this ticket. And the races that I did before the other golden tickets, so Bandera and Canyons, I wasn't so sure I wanted the ticket at that point. I wasn't sure I was quite ready for that at that early point in my career, but by the time Black Canyon came around, I was 100% sure I wanted to be here. You had friends there crew crewing you, you had friends there, including friends that are in the race, like, like JP Giblin. I'm curious, you're part of this really outstanding Boulder community, the Boulder Buds, I've been told though, not the, the Boulder, Boulder Boys. <laughs> yeah. So t talk a little bit about, you've got a number of actually training partners and friends in the race this weekend. I know you're competitive. I know that competitive fire will be highlighted over the course of tomorrow, but I think there's magic and being really strongly connected to the people that you're out there with. So tell us a little bit about getting on the start line with so many close training partners and friends. Yeah, it's really been amazing to have so many people to train with for the same specific event over the last couple months. And yeah, like you said, they're not just training partners, they're really close friends of mine and people who I really want to see do very well. And, and honestly, for the most part, they're people that I looked up to in the sport before I even made my break and found my place in it. So it's such a cool feeling that I'm doing my training runs with, with my friends John Ray and Riley and JP, and they're all these people that a couple years ago I was like, oh, they're so fast. <laughs> um, so I think, it, and Riley and I have talked about this a lot, we have a very similar racing style, so 
it'll be great to have a buddy like that out on the course who I can pace myself off of, um, but also bring that sense of home comfort and keep a chill conversational environment throughout the beginning of the race at least. So this is without a question the biggest race of your career, which I think can be intimidating, but also it's a huge opportunity for you to establish yourself even more, not only in North America, but really this is the international stage, one of the biggest stages in the world. How do you embrace that opportunity and not let it over overwhelm you? Yeah, I think just taking it step by step and I think it's almost like a, it's like an ultra in itself. like. The race is so long that you don't want to get caught up in the excitement in the beginning. And so I think I'm taking this opportunity in that same sort of stride um, and knowing that I perform my best when I'm not super anxious, when I don't think about the pressure behind something and just think about it as this is a really cool opportunity. I'm out there with friends. Um, yes, it is a really big deal, but there's no point in letting that add to my nerves um, and just taking it for all the positives as opposed to looking at all the stressors that could be attached to it. I'm trying to recall every single race you've ever run off the top of my head, and it turns out it's just a bunch of jumble up here right now. Is this your debut 100? Yes. Okay, so debut, <laughs> debut Western States, yeah. debut 100. That's really exciting. It doesn't, not a lot of people get to do that. I guess, tell us a little bit about leaping into the unknown. You've done a lot of 100Ks and have done quite well there, but that's a big jump. So talk a little bit about like the excitement and the maybe like not fear, but like question that comes along with that big jump. Yeah, it's definitely intimidating, especially when I feel like I've mastered 100Ks, or at least how I like to execute them. And so moving away from something that I've finally fine-tuned is a little intimidating, and I have no idea how my body is going to respond during the race or after the race. But I don't know. I think there's a lot of power in being naive going up to a race. I mean, honestly, that's been a lot of my career is I just <laughs> have no idea what I'm doing. Let's see what happens. Um, and I've, I've seen a lot of other athletes do really well with that, and so I'm... I'm hoping to use that energy to go into it, the, the kind of ignorance is bliss, let's see what happens, um, but also, but not being silly about it, so controlling the controllables, um, and yeah, just hoping for the best. Yeah, Katie Asmuth was like, we're like, she's like, yeah, you just kind of have to believe, and it's it's kind of just like, it's naivety, it's it's ignorance, but what, she's like, you just kind of ride that. Yeah, yeah, there's no point in being nervous about things you can't control, it's just gonna add stress. So then how do you build that belief? Uh, <laughs> I think I'm more looking at it not as belief, and but more as like a, reminding myself how I can enjoy the day. And so reminding myself I'm running slow enough where it, it shouldn't be too painful the whole time. There are always gonna be people around to energize me. I really like talking to people during races. Um, that brings me a lot of energy. Um, and so less focusing on the belief and the luck aspect of it and focusing more on that this is something that I get to do today. And. And all in all, at the end of the day, I love being outside and I love running. And what a great opportunity to be able to do that for more than a day, essentially. <laughs> so I know talking to you at Black Canyon, your coach had been like, okay, like, let's put you in the hunt, but you got to chill out a little bit early on. You're not, historically, chilling out's not been, I think, your favorite thing to I'm do. I'm not really good at chilling. Yeah, you're not very good at chilling. So the first, like, yeah, 50K of these 100Ks have gone, like, swimmingly, and then it's been a, a hang-on moment. But I think, like, we watched you execute on that at Black Canyon. Has that same advice been doled out for Western states? Yeah, definitely. And I think the conditions and the style of the course are going to, towards me very well and also towards that the benefit of 
being chill in the beginning. Like a lot of the climbing's in the beginning, a lot of the snow and the slower parts are in the beginning. So there's no point in my trying to get caught up in the crowd. So I think that that will, and because I have the confidence of seeing that work in Black Canyon, I think that that is yeah exactly how I'll hope to execute it. So you mentioned some of your friends in Boulder. I'm curious, you know, as somebody who is less experienced than many of the women in the contenders field tomorrow, sort of like how you've done the homework, what are you looking forward to, and like whose advice have you sought leading into tomorrow's race, which is, again, the biggest race of your career? Yeah, I'm definitely, I feel very lucky being in Boulder, being surrounded by so many mentors in the sport, and it's, it's kind of silly. It's not just mentors in the sport. It's like Claire Gallagher and Ryan Smith, just absolute legends in the sport, and so I've been doing a couple of training runs with them here and there and of course um, Ryan Smith and Amelia Boone and a couple others are on my crew who have a lot of extensive experience in the race um, so asking them detailed questions seeing everybody's advice but also remembering that this is my race and I run differently than everybody and so digesting the information but not letting it overwhelm my decisions and then kind of sitting down with it and thinking okay how I know myself as a runner compared to these other runners so how should I take their advice and adapt it to my style. So now I have to ask about the advice that Claire Gallagher gave you. Of course, she is a past champion here at Western States, and as you said, an all-time legend of, of her generation especially. Anything uh, that you remember from that conversation? Yeah, the two things that she keeps bringing up is, well, I'm notorious about not stopping at aid stations, and so she's like shaking my shoulders like, Megan, stop at the aid stations and take a chill. Um, so that, and then just reminding me to be smart, which I think is one of my main mantras going into it is just be smart, you know, you have a plan, you have a good head on your shoulders, so use it. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that was really highlighted at Black Canyon was how much you love and excel at downhill running. There's quite a bit of downhill out on this course. We're not going to give away any trade secrets or spoil any plans you might have, but is that the part that you're looking forward to the most, that canyon section of just letting it rip? I'm so excited. Yeah, I, I know what my legs can do, and I know what they can hold on to and what they can't, and I'm very excited for, I think, what I can put together in that second half of the course. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Megan, you're one of the people who I am most excited to see race tomorrow. Thank I you. wish you nothing but good luck. Corinne and I will be following you throughout the day. I hope it's a great journey. Thanks so much. Thanks, Big round guys. of applause for <laughs> Megan Morgan. Okay, we are back just to reset here. This is the third and final pre-race interview show presented by Hoka. My name's Dylan Bowman here with Corinne Malcolm, and we are lucky to be joined by one of the co-founders of Hoka, Mr. Nico Mermud. Nico, welcome back to Western States. How's it feel? Good morning. It feels great. It's probably the seventh or eighth time I come here starting in uh, 2011, and I love this place. It's uh, such a special atmosphere. There's history, there is friendship, authenticity. Uh, everybody's walking through that uh, little street here, and it's a lot of uh, great time uh, to spend with the athletes, the press, the runners. Uh, love it, love it, love it. Yeah, so 2011, that was just two years after. You're the co-founder of Hoka. 2009, I believe, was when you all got off the ground. Tell us a little bit about the origin story of how Hoka came to be. So we started with uh, my partner and friend Jean-Luc uh, back in 2008 to think about what could be done. We wanted to start a company in the sports industry. It looked like uh, uh, running and uh, trail and hiking had a lot of potential. Uh, it's a very, very uh, serious market uh, worldwide. Uh, there hadn't been so much innovation at that time. and. Um, 
being trail runners ourselves, we felt like the downhills were really critical. There was really uh, a lot of pain, a lot of stress when you get to the top of the mountain. And we unfortunately grew up uh, skiing, biking, surfing, and this was very frustrating uh, for us to, to make the effort to go to the top of a mountain and not to enjoy full speed the thrill of the downhill. So, therefore, we started thinking about uh, a midsole a component which would allow people to run downhill really fast, like almost in a free ride, uh, free mindset. That uh, worked really quickly. The shoes were very soft, rockered. They were big. They were literally flying down. We tried, tried to time ourselves with the very first prototypes. And the big surprise came from how efficient they were running flat and even running uphill. So, yeah, I remember when it, it first came out, it was just like a radical looking product. And it was at the time, for those who are maybe newer to the sport, when minimal footwear was all the rage around the release of Born to Run and all the uh, blogs that were popular around that time. I'm curious, like, where that design inspiration came from, and also, like, is that what you viewed as the opportunity to go against the prevailing wisdom or against what was popular in the market? That's a very interesting uh, question and, and misunderstanding about Hoka. Uh, first, we were uh, French and in France, so we didn't care much about uh, trends. We are a little bit individualist, and uh, we are rebel, but uh, we try to go our own path with creativity. Uh, second of all, when we started to create the first prototypes, we had absolutely no idea about minimalism. You know, it was something which uh, started uh, as a very big hype uh, here in, uh, in North America. So, what happened is that when we started to display the shoes with US consumers and dealers, they saw the opportunity to go with something which would be uh, more protective and which would be uh, probably more stable and more interesting for the consumers. I, I have to, to be honest and tell you that uh, even in 2009 and 2010, there were a lot of people already in the US who were skeptical about the idea of running barefoot, uh, knowing their consumers' uh, typology. And I, I would say they helped us uh, put Hawker on the map by uh, embracing the technology really quickly. Yeah, so obviously the love was there in the rugged mountains, right? You're developing a trail shoe to run in the European Alps pr predominantly. It's now since grown into a brand that has expanded well into the road and track realm as well. I would love to hear a little bit about kind of the expansion there because, you know, my, my dad, my dad's a runner still. He's in his, he's almost 70 and he gets his four miles in every day and, and Hoka is the shoe that's on his foot. And so I'm just kind of curious as the brand has expanded into the road and track side, what that's meant for you as a company. You know, we also have uh, young runners. Huh? You will see some uh, oh, oh, this weekend. Uh, but it's true that the shoe is popular with uh, every age group and uh, it, it has allowed a lot of people who couldn't run anymore to go back to running. Um, pretty much everywhere in the world. Uh, what happened with the transition from trail to road is uh, it, it happened really quite fast. Uh, the very first uh, prototypes and model we sold was a Mafare that was uh, May 2010. And very quickly, uh, we created a version with a slick outsole called the Stinson B, which was our first uh, road shoe. So pretty much, I would say, 
the very first uh, trade show was May 2010, and the very first roadshow was like November 2010, and the Bondi B came in 2011. So it was obvious for everybody that this technology could work not only on rugged trails and downhill, but also on uh, pavement. So, and from there, I think we, we stayed very attached to the mountains, and that's why we are very strongly involved with events like Western States of UTMB World Series. But meanwhile, the, we, we have like a, a panel of customers which uh, is close to what you find with any other brand. We have uh, 70, 80% uh, of our sales for like uh, runners and walkers and 70, 80% of our shoes which are used on, on pavements. And then it's, uh, it's another maybe 10% hiking, 10% uh, trail running. But 10% yeah. trail running is enough to make us a leader in this category worldwide. Yeah, and it's in the DNA. And I think speaking about the versatility of the shoe, I think it, that's probably one of the reasons why it's exploded in popularity. It's been able to establish itself as probably the most popular shoe in trail running. I would guess that tomorrow more people will be wearing Hoka's than The any survey will confirm that yeah, probably. Yeah, the survey will likely confirm that. What's it been like for you to be part of that growth and to watch it grow from you, this humble beginnings and this small little idea between you and Jean-Luc to this established international brand? Of course, there have been many steps, and, and the most critical one is a partnership with, uh, with Deckers, which started uh, fairly early, like uh, back in 2012. Uh, we talk a lot about the shoe and the technology, but uh, there's also a lot behind the brand. When we started also not being runners ourselves and coming from action sports, we wanted to uh, advocate a new way of running, which was more based on adrenaline, on freedom, on having fun, on, 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 on flying, on taking off. And, and that's all what the Oka brand is about. And, and we're launching right now, as we speak, like a, a very new uh, film about, about the brand and, and, and how, what, what, what we want our community to be. And it goes beyond the technology. It's, uh, it's not only about splits and performing and making it to the finish line. It's also about having fun, uh, being with friends, doing different things and trying to go as fast as possible. What does it feel? It's extremely exciting. It's extremely exciting because there is like, uh, first of all, an amazing team uh, here in, uh, in California, in Santa Barbara. So the company is based now in, in California. So, and, and, and partnering still with this team and consulting uh, for myself, or being part uh, and leading innovation for the group, for Jean-Luc, it's a wonderful adventure uh, 14 years after we started, and, and I'm happy and, and, and grateful to, to still be able to come and, uh, and join and, and give some input to, to, keep, to keep the brand, uh, to help keep the brand uh, on track when we think about the original DNA. Yeah, we're, so we're here at Western States. Let's talk a little bit about you know, the athletes that are here, your role in kind of cultivating the team that is that is here you guys have done a great job of identifying talent and, and bringing talent up you know the likes of Jim Walmsley, Magda Boulay, Adam Peterman, Casey Lichtig, John Rea who's sitting here in the audience, um, Nikki Kimball is who got me into trail and ultra running back in Montana like talk a little bit about kind of that brand partnership between Hoka and the athlete team that's been cultivated. So my role here, once this interview is done, is, is mainly to cheer, you know, to, to cheer 
to make sure we are we uh, we do the best and uh, pretty much to to open a nice bottle of French champagne after the finish line if uh, if a, a woman or a man uh, wins Western States. Uh, if it's Hayden Hopes who wins, maybe it won't be champagne. We'll find something else. Uh, anyway. Uh, the athletes have been a part of a very important part of the success of Hoka from day one. The thing is when you come with uh, a technology which feels and looks extremely different in such a competitive sport as uh, running or trail running, you need immediately to have credibility. Yeah. So it helped a bit that I had podium UTMB and that I was still running, but you still need people outside the, the, the core team, you know, the founders, the first employees and stuff. The two first people we used, uh, one is here. It's, it was the, actually the uh, number one athlete to use Hoka outside the company, and that's Ludo Pomeray. Uh, Ludo is legendary. It started to use the shoes in 2009 in the Grand Raid in Iranian, came in second. And uh, the second guy, uh, it's funny, very related to Western States also, is Carl Meltzer. Uh, and Carl, uh, we met at UTMB 2007, and we met again uh, at the first trade show we entered in, in Salt Lake City. And Carl is the father of the Speed Goat, which is, uh, I would say now, the most sold trail running show in the world. So this goes way back. And of course, as the years uh, went past by, we, we enriched the team with uh, some athletes who have much more of a running background, maybe less adventure, and a lot of like uh, really great people are here. I think on the women's side, uh, Heather Jackson, uh, Heather, who's, uh, who's been uh, really great in the Ironman for a few years. Uh, we'll give it uh, a shot tomorrow and uh, has really serious chances. chances uh, Casey, who's back, who's healthy now and was already won. Uh, we're going to follow, there's a, a few other uh, women. On the men's category, um, we witnessed like three, four years of uh, great success uh, for Hokia with uh, Adam last year and Jim the previous years. Uh, they won't compete this year, but there is like a, also, uh, I think, very uh, strong chances. Ludo, uh, most likely is very wise, will be able to make a top 10 again. And Cole Watson, and of course uh, Hayden, who's been like already twice on the podium, has a very uh, serious chance to, to win. I, th I think tomorrow will be uh, will be very interesting uh, for sure. The, the runners will be held back a little by the not the snow, the hard snow. I don't think the snow will be very soft tomorrow morning for the first 12 miles, and and which so we will save energy, and then in the second part of the race. Uh, I would correct Mathieu who said um, the temperature and the conditions were the same uh, when uh, Jim broke the record. It's going to be much cooler tomorrow. It's going to be it's going to be about 15 uh, 15 degrees cooler, uh, and that's that's a big deal, you know, uh, for, for 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 the speed. So we we, we might see uh, the guys like the four or five guys uh, we're going to be leading go absolutely crazy. Of course. We have friends uh, coming also for, from Asia, from China, um, who can do extremely well and, and will set the race on fire. 
I was going to ask you what your plans were for tomorrow. You said your job is to cheer and then open up a bottle of French champagne at the end. So maybe an alternative closing question for you. Just like the future of the brand for Hoka, what, what are you excited about for the future of what you've created? So uh, maybe it's, it's a little bit uh, too, sim too, too simple to say that's going to be my, only my two goals tomorrow. I have a very, uh, very nice routine that I, that I love when I come to Western States. I wake up early and I go to the escarpment and uh, because I, I have a lot of friends here, some, some elite and some more in the middle of the pack, so I'll, I'll probably stay there until everybody goes. Then I come back down, I try to take uh, an alternate route to go uh, to, to, to the chutes and to the lakes behind there. And then uh, I, I drive to uh, either Michigan Bluff or Forest Hill uh, and, and spend a good time there and then go to the river and try to, to go and, and run not along the course but on like uh, alternate trails to, to, to see the finish. And then probably uh, we'll be with a group, uh, we have a group of uh, customers here and we'll be at the finish for, um, for a few hours. And that's really cool also uh, waiting for the first women very often at Western States, something that's, that's really exciting and that uh, there's a lot of uh, drama with like the, the finish of the women. They, they pass each other a lot in the past 20 miles, so it's, it's a very uncertain race on the women's side year after year, so we're gonna be excited to see that. And that's gonna be, it's gonna be a long and exciting day. As far as the future of Hocal, uh, I think now the, the company uh, being in such good hands is uh, is growing on uh, on all categories. Uh, we, we want to remain very focused on uh, trail runners and road runners uh, through very uh, cutting edge products. You, you all know there has been a lot of innovation with the shape of the shoes, with the plates, with the materials, the forms. So this is really the number one part of our strategy. And then in the meantime, uh, we're still expanding worldwide in uh, some other key categories, which are hiking, travel, and also lifestyle. Uh, in lifestyle and in running, both for footwear and apparel. So it's, it's, we're still staying focused on uh, what made Hokia popular, but we have a world of opportunities to expand for the next uh, five years. And hopefully, We'll still try to do that hand-in-hand hand with events like Western States. Well, Nico, congratulations on all the success you guys have seen with Hoka. We are very grateful for the support of Western States and for the support of the broadcast. Thanks for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us here on stage. Have a great day tomorrow. Big round of applause for Nico Maribud. Thank you. We will be back in just a second with the top returning American, Leah Yingling. Okay, we are back with our final athlete interview of the day, Leah Yingling. Before we get to her, quick programming note. After this interview, we are going to wrap up our show with an awesome analysis and prognostication panel with last year's men's champion, Adam Peterman, and the editor-in-chief of Iron Farm, Megan Hicks. So if you want to hear some quote-unquote experts talk about what to expect in tomorrow's race, stick around for our final session, which will occur after this interview. But before we get to that, Leah... Top American last year, rocking the F6 bib. How's it feel to be back for your second try? I'm excited. I'm 
been ready to go since like three days ago. So I just want to get the show on the road. <laughs> yeah, I think we have a similar race tactic where we just become this person that's like kind of just like, I'm not excited or nervous. Like, I'm indifferent. Can we just do this now? <laughs> Let's just do it. Yeah, like it's another half sleep to go. You're going to make it. Um, I guess reflecting on last year a little bit, I think it was there was some initial uncertainty, I think, if you were going to like want to come back again was mm-hmm. going to become a project so tell us a little bit about yeah like having a great back half of the race like just kind of clawing your way through the field and then the decision to like yeah to take that um f6 bib, bib to come back again this year yeah going into the race last year i think i was sitting out in the parking lot minutes before the start and i looked at my husband mike saying like i think i can run 1830 out here today and ended up running 1832 at the end of the day. And <laughs> moved my way up in the second half of the race from about 10th to 6th from the river. And just knew when I finished that it was my best race of my life to date. But at the same time that there was a lot more that I could give in certain sections. Um, so initially, yeah, I wasn't really planning on coming back. But the second I crossed the finish line and vomited an hour later, I was like, oh, I gotta come back. (laughs) (laughs) So say more about that. I mean, sort of the come from behind sixth place. Do you feel like you could have given more in certain places? Like, where do you think you can improve on the course? Yeah, I think I really started to turn it on at the river last year. I remember uh, in Michigan Bluff last year, just coming in at about 12th or 13th and hearing from a couple people that just said, like, stay chill in this next section. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. And then once I got to Forest Hill, still just wanted to relax. Um, I think on Cal Street, or from Michigan Bluff probably on this year, I can really turn it on a little bit more. Um, I'm never really in the mix in these races, and I think the first time I was even featured in an I Run Far tweet in the top 10 was like at the river last year, so my goal is to be in an I Run Far tweet before the river. I think Mike would probably appreciate that too. It'd probably cause a lot less stress for him as well if you were up a little bit higher in the I Run Far tweets early. Kind of reflecting a little bit on your prep for last year versus this year, you kind of raced a lot last year. That's probably an understatement. Just like yeah. a, you, you, you historically so yeah. have raced a lot. This year, different scenario. I know work's been crazy for you. You had a phenomenal way too cool, and then you pivoted to kind of more of like an at-home 50-mile race that I think you won close to outright. Mm-hmm like very, very fast, but that was a pivot from like the option to go to Transville Kanye. So talk a little bit about like resetting your sights on how you wanted to feel coming into Western States and how racing was or wasn't part of that prep. Yeah, last year was just outrageous. I mean, I did Bandera, Trans Grand Canaria, the shorter race out there, Gorge 50K, then Canyons, and then like six weeks later, eight weeks later, Western States. So I was a little unsure of how Western States would go after all of that last year, and I would say I pleasantly surprised myself. I wasn't sure how much freshness I would have coming into the day, so I think that's part of the reason why I raced the way I did last year, was just always anticipating the blow up but never experiencing it, which was really cool. Um, This year, I wanted to come in a bit more fresh on the legs, Um, And like you said, my work schedule's just been outrageous. So this year, the plan was to do way too cool uh, Transvolcania and then this. And I work as a biomedical engineer in the medical device space and just really ramped up with technology launches in about April and May. And like week one was supposed of one of my launches was Transvolcania. And I just looked at Mike the one night at home and I said, how do you feel about taking this trip off the table? And he's like, I feel great about that. And I said, good, I feel great about that. (laughs) So we pivoted and went to do a race in Virginia where I got to be surrounded by my family. Um, My little nephew ran me into the finish line and 
it was like a life highlight, a race highlight, and honestly, like an ultra-running career highlight to be surrounded by my family in a small little race, but something that was really meaningful on my ultra-running trajectory because I think it was one of the first times I really just put myself first and put my stress levels first and was looking kind of a little bit more long-term because I think it's really easy to get wrapped up in the sport and always doing the next biggest thing, the next best thing, and trying to puzzle piece your way into like the best season possible. Um, but I think sometimes the best season possible is, you know, incorporating the things that are most meaningful to you. Love that. So you just talked about the balance between fitness and freshness. Talk about the balance between risk taking and being conservative, because if your hope is to be in an Iron Far tweet before the river this year, that means that you're probably planning to be slightly more aggressive. But there's a lot of women in the field and men in the field who race with the opposite style, who are more aggressive, who like to be front runners. You're not that athlete. How are you thinking about the, the taking risks versus being conservative? It's something I really struggle with. Um, I'm good friends with Anthony Costales, and we always talk about how our racing strategies are the polar opposite. <laughs> so I, I just need to take a little, a couple notes from him this race, I think. Um, but it's something that, like, just feeling the energy of the race and knowing where I have strengths. Um, and I think a lot of that is in the climbing, in the descending, and just being resilient in those early miles. I think something that will be to my advantage this year is the significant snow that we will experience in the early 50K. Uh, I think I'll be able to stay a little bit more calm and collected on that stuff and hopefully let it phase me a little less than others. Um, and hoping some of that energy can be conserved for later. But yeah, I want to be riskier. I think uh, probably after Robinson Flat though. <laughs> Yeah, one of, I mean, Anthony Costales is going to be featured in a tweet early by Iron Farr, and it's going to be like, Anthony Costales is in third, but he's cheering for Leah Yingling. Who's in 20th. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. No, but okay, so we were talking to Emily Hoggood yesterday, and she finished fifth. She finished just in front of you. At one point in time, I think at the river, she was told that she had a 40-minute gap. Little did she know that you were not, I think, up into sixth position yet, but she did, in fact, did not have a 40-minute gap. <laughs> I think there have been, I've heard from numerous women that Leah Yingling is not who they want chasing them in the back 20 miles of this race. I mean, in my mind, while yes, you might want to be a little bit more aggressive, there's a bit of a superpower involved in that. So talk a little bit about finding strength and like knowing that you're kind of known as a closer. Yeah, it's really empowering. Uh, I knew last year from the river, from looking at some historic splits that doing four hours from the river to the finish was within my wheelhouse and it was something that I could do. Um, so I find a lot of energy in that is having this like little time goal to chase as well. Uh, and last year, our mutual friend Matt Mitchell was pacing me on that last section. And man, we were just hunting people down and it was, I always, we were talking about it last night. I went into this like mode that is like not Leah, I swear, on this section. Like I turned my hat on backwards at one point. I was like, I, did, I had Matt in front of me. I was like, I don't want these people to know that a woman is passing them. So yeah, little tactics like that, having fun with it. And um, yeah, just being energized by the people around you. But like you said, it's really energizing to pass people. And that's Mike's been telling me, like, just to take energy from that. So I'm going to channel a little bit of that. Yeah, I'd historically tell my crew I didn't care if I caught anyone. And then we'd see a woman and I would speed up. And they're like, <laughs> she clearly cares still. I think I might turn my hat around for the final prognostication panel <laughs> just to get serious. Maybe final question for you before we let you go, Leah. We just sort of talked about how you didn't race as much this year. But maybe give us a glimpse into the training and, you know, the mix of volume and intensity and how it maybe 
compares to the training you put in before last year's race? Yeah, I was looking back on last year's training and I'm historically a lower mileage athlete compared to some. Uh, and I was looking at the weeks leading up to the race last year and I was doing like 40 miles, 50 miles, nothing crazy whatsoever. And I think that was by the nature of the racing that I had done last year. Uh, this year was a lot more just calculated, like building up to the 50K. So I did a lot of speed in the winter leading up to way too cool, had a really good race there. Then build up more volume for my April 50 miler. And then since April, I've just been focusing a lot more on the back-to-back, back-to-back-to-back long runs um, and finding a lot of just power in those. Um, so yeah, for me, like 85 to 90 miles is pretty big. And I think I was in that range about three weeks or so. Um, typical swap coaching. I'm coached by Megan Roach and have been for about six years now. So it works really well for me. It keeps me healthy and keeps me balanced with my work schedule as well. So yeah, feeling really fresh with this. Um, I've never really had a big block of training going into a race. And I think I'm going to find a lot of inspiration in that during the race tomorrow. Amazing. Well, Leah, thank you so much for coming on the stage with us. Go pick up that F6 bib, <laughs> and we'll look forward to seeing you taking some risks tomorrow that on the race sense. course. Round of applause for Leah Yingling, top American. We will be right back to close our show out with Megan Hicks and 2022 champion Adam Peterman, where we're going to go deep on the field, on the conditions, on the course. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. This is our final session here, our annual analysis and prognostication panel. For our guests who need no introduction, I'm going to introduce you anyway. 2022 champion, the legend, Adam Peterman is here. Not racing tomorrow, so he's doing the second best thing, which is just talking about the race tomorrow. So. And of course, the great editor-in-chief of I Run Far, Megan Hicks. Megan, welcome back to the panel for the third year in a row, I think. That sounds about right. <laughs> so we're going to just quickly kind of like talk about the course, the conditions, maybe draw some historical analogs from past races. We'll talk about the fields, maybe make some predictions, and then we'll log off so everybody can get excited for the race tomorrow. Maybe Megan and Corinne, starting with you too, I think it'd be okay. good to just kind of like set the table of what makes this year different, the snow, the fire, just kind of set those things up for the audience. Yeah, I think we've had months and months of speculation around the course. We have had some text exchanges <laughs> to that effect about snow conditions, et cetera. Um, I mean, we all know about the Mosquito Fire. There's 16 miles of the course that were affected by it. If it was going to be a hot, hot year, I would be really worried, more worried than I already am about that section because it's going to be just direct sun on the athletes. There is snow in the high country. Is it 2017 levels? Is it 2019 levels? I think that is a little bit TBD. I think Mike McMonagall is probably the only person that knows since he ran all 30 miles of it on Monday. But it's going to be a little bit slower on the front end, and that's going to play to some athletes' strengths and potentially wreck some other athletes' races really early. You know, they're saying that the weather forecast is not going to be so hot, maybe in the vicinity of the 2019 race. The 2019 race was still a very fast race. I think if we're, uh, if we're doing anything with these course conditions, we might be underestimating the, the potential of them. I think it's going to be a fast day tomorrow, no doubt. Agreed. I agree. Adam, maybe talk about, since you're not racing tomorrow, how might you approach these conditions? Like snow in the front part, although it's still kind of a mystery how much snow there is cooler weather conditions, going to be one of the top 10 coolest days in Western States history tomorrow. If you were in the field tomorrow, how would you be thinking about that strategically? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great opportunity to run a fast time. Uh, but that being said, it's still a 100-mile race. Um, so I think it'd be easy to get caught up in it and early on be running a little bit too fast, especially, I think, after the snow. I think, I think in the snow, everyone's going to probably, you know, take it easy. They know that takes a big toll on you. But yeah, once that snow's out, I mean, it's going to be a lot faster. So I think, I mean, I think there's not going to be as much carnage as on a normal year, but just due to the heat and all that that happens to you. But yeah, I think, I think it's going to be fast and people, people might be uh, blowing up a little later, but they'll be running hard. I had a friend text me ahead of race week and he said, so if you were in the men's race, he's racing, if you were in the men's race, who would you be worrying about that you don't think I'm already worrying about? And I was like, oh, this is like a fun like brain brain puzzle. But yeah, I think that there's yeah, there's there's things to be considered, but I do think that I'm I mean, I don't historically would be like, oh, is it a course record year or not? I think for some people, particularly on the women's side, we'll talk about this more later. Like there's some times on the table, I think. Yeah, let's, let's get to times a little bit later, but let's go a little bit deeper on what Adam said. I mean, obviously in hot years, you can expect and predict attrition and carnage, especially in the second half of the race. How might this cooler year impact racing strategy, especially given the fact that we likely will see less attrition? I'll start because I ran the 2019 year. <laughs> And I was one of the people who went out. I went out with Eliza LaPierre. We had finished eighth and ninth the year before. We were just like having a great time. And then I realized that I did, didn't think we were moving fast enough and I started panicking a lot. And it's because the field went out really, really hard that year despite there being snow in the front part of the course. Um, I think I came to Forest Hill in like 20th or something and caught nine people between there and the river and then moved up one more spot on my way to the finish. And it was just like, yeah, I think that the, the conditions, the cool temps are gonna, it does two things, right? Like it was a fast year, people ran incredibly fast times. I did not, I ran the exact same time in 2018 that I did in 2019 because I don't like cold weather apparently. <laughs> but what did happen was that I still caught a ton of people and we saw a lot of people make mistakes early because they were like, oh, it's cool. I don't need to utilize as much ice. I don't need to practice my cooling strategies. I went heavy on the ice exactly like I did in 2018 and that allowed me to, I think, run a really strong back 40 miles. And so less attrition probably, but at the same time, people are still gonna make mistakes. I think it'd be really fun, I mean, it, TBD on how the competition goes tomorrow, but a, a, a fun memory to bring up now is the 2012 race, which was the, the cold, cold race. It was actually stormy on race morning. Um, the men's and women's fields both went out hyper-conservative. They talked about in the days before, let's do the high country easy. We don't know what we're gonna find up there. It might be dangerous. So everybody was hyper-conservative and that put both fields in a position to absolutely rip the final half of the race and that's exactly what happened there were course records in on the men's side course record on the women's side um, and it, an incredibly dense competitive finish for that time for for yeah. 11 years ago so who's to say what's going to happen with the men's and women's fields tomorrow but if there is a group of people or a unit that goes out conservatively through these question mark areas i think the way conditions are set up in the second half of the course a slightly cooler day um yeah we could see some fast times yeah, in the second half. Yeah, I think half. Tom's like, on the record as saying that. He thinks, you know, people are going to run 15, 30 pace for the first to Robinson Flat and then 14, 30 pace to 
Forest Hill and then under a sub 14 hour pace from there to the finish line, like Strava CRs, you know, segments are gonna go down in the final 40 miles type of thing. Building off what Megan said, I raced that year in 2012, and I was one of the people that did make mistakes and imploded. <laughs> and I think just to sort of add a finer point on this, if you do miscalculate, obviously this is one of the most competitive races in the field. You are gonna have people breathing down your neck immediately, but I think it's gonna be even more so in cooler conditions. So I would expect the top 10 men's and women's fields to be pretty bunched up like a, uh, a smaller delta between first and tenth on both sides. In 2019, we saw the just insanity of men sprinting in from Roby Point. I think everyone dropped their pacer because it was like men eight through 14 or something. Like all, like, like Stephen Kirsch, I believe, I think, no, I don't know if he's, I think he was pacing that year. I think like he got dropped. Like really good runners got dropped in the final mile because there was like a six person drag race for the last two spots in the top 10. Like that was wild. So I've got the weather up in front of me, so just to put it on the record here for our viewing audience, it looks like a high expected in Auburn tomorrow of about 80 degrees, so probably a couple degrees cooler in Forest Hill, a couple degrees cooler than that up at Robinson Flat. And looking ahead to next week, and they're anticipating highs of 95, 96 degrees, so the runners are lucking out tomorrow, I think. Race week was supposed to start next week, I guess. Yeah, so maybe to bring Adam back in, like last year was sort of a historically hot year. You raced in such an intelligent fashion like talk about like uh, you know that memory and, and just the, how well you executed in such tough conditions last year yeah I think last year the high in Auburn was pretty close to 100 maybe I think it was like 97 or 98 um, and that was my first it was my debut 100 miler so I didn't have a lot of expectations going in but I think that actually played in my favor like I didn't I didn't know how I'd feel at the end, so I took it out pretty conservatively and just ran my own race. And uh, it wasn't until maybe mile 50 that I even considered the prospect of winning. But uh, I think that worked really well. I was running, you know, pretty conservative, chilling, and not really panicking about anything. And you know, there were times in that first 50 miles where I was in sixth place, and times where I was in third. But it didn't it didn't really bug me. Uh, but then, yeah, at mile 50, uh, it felt like kind of switch flipped in me and. I thought I was gonna win. And I don't know why I felt that way, but it just carried that all the way to the end. And uh, I don't know, I think even for the guys and girls tomorrow, it's still like a 100 mile race, like I said. And even though it's cooler, I think they're probably gonna feel the same internally as they would if it was hot. You're just running so much faster, you know, cause you're, your heart rate's not elevated due to the heat. You're not stopping constantly to get water on you and get ice. I mean, you're just gonna run faster regardless, just because of the conditions. Um, so I think they should remember that you don't need to run harder because it's not as hot. Yeah, just to dovetail off of that, like what universe do we live in and where we say when the high is 80 um, at the finish line and the high, the lowest point of the course is going to be 84, what universe do we live in that that's a cool year? Yeah, it's only cool because it's 20 degrees cooler than it could be, but yeah, and I think people experienced that out at the training camp weekend where, or our other weekends like subsequently since then was like this idea that like, you're in that burn section, you're in the canyons, like it's solar, like it, it feels, I went for a run, it was 50 degrees a couple days ago in the morning and I started out feeling cool and by the time I was running back to my car, I was like, yeah, I'm actually kind of warm right now. And I was like, yeah, 52 degrees. So before we start talking about the fields, I think it would be uh, unwise to at least not mention the fire that happened last fall. So maybe Corinne or Megan, if you have any insights you want to share with the audience about the fire damage, the recovery, and 
ultimately the reroute of the course on Cal Street. Yeah, so I haven't seen all of the all of the parts of the parts of what burned, but as Corinne said, 16 miles of the course have burned, um, sort of in the in the middle to uh, going into the second third of the or the third third of the race. Is that right? Math is hard, apparently. Um, but I think. One of the things that I've heard folks say and uh, one of the things that I've seen myself in one run through the burn zone is that dust is going to be a factor this year. I don't know how far this storm that we all hear at Olympic Valley, uh, how far that went, but dust was very prominent on the section that I ran in. And so people with uh, breathing issues or looking to keep their lungs clear, that might be something to think about for tomorrow. And I do think that, um, as you guys have mentioned, the, the difference between uh, shade and sun uh, when you're up in like higher altitude areas, that's just so much noticeable. Shade is is real. Sun is real here. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a little bit epic through that section. I think the big things to note, yeah. So it's like maybe you, you run in front of your pacer, and maybe you're not in a long conga line of people. When it's dry here, when we don't have snow in the first part of the course, actually the high country can be quite dusty. Meredith Terranova saved my first Western States by warning me about that in 2018. And yeah, I was in a line of you know 20 people just like inhaling dust. So. Something to be cognizant of. I think the other piece of that is is that there's a slight, if you ran um, Memorial Day training camp weekend, you're running the same route you did that, that weekend. We can't go through that private land for race weekend this year. The goal is to be back on that next year. So there's a slight, a slight change to the course there where you go on Sierra View to get around that private land in holding, which I don't think changes the course substantially whatsoever. Yeah, you basically just run on the road an extra mile through Forest Hill before you take your left-hand turn. Unfortunately, you don't take the iconic left-hand turn on California Street, which then spills onto the Western States Trail. Craig Thornley was on our panel here yesterday and talked to us a little bit about it. It seems like a resolution is on the horizon, but this year we will not be able to run that section of the course. Just jump in one more uh, one more thing that I felt when I was running out in out by Deadwood Cemetery and in, in Deadwood Canyon, where the fire is just so strongly there that there's this, you know, the Western States Trail is a historic trail, and it's like being in hallowed grounds, and the feeling of running through these areas that have burned so strongly, like. I don't know if it's like there's the ghosts of runners past or of horses past, but there's just this, I don't know, I got these backbone shivers running through that area. Something's happening out there sort of spiritually. Totally, and I think before we move on, we should acknowledge and thank all the volunteers who put the course together for us this year. I know there was a lot of people speculating as to whether or not Western States would happen in 2023 after the historic snowfall and the Mosquito Fire. And here we are, Craig Thornley, the great team of volunteers in the race organization. Yes, thank you. Round of applause for them. So let's talk about the field. Adam Peterman, you won the race last year. Hayden Hawks was sort of your, your next closest competitor, finishing in second place. Like, if you were in the field this year, who would some of the people be who you'd be sort of uh, looking at in terms of the, the top dogs and top contenders? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a little biased for uh, my team, Hoka, but of course, yeah, it's a great field. I think of the 10 men from last year, I think we have seven or eight returning. Uh, but yeah, I think Hayden's had a great block of training. I mean, I follow him on Strava and he's a friend of mine and, you know, he runs 130, 135 miles a week in six days. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, and I know he's been training with Tom Evans from uh, Great Britain, an Adidas athlete and also a, a guy from New Zealand named Dan Jones. And I feel like those three guys will be, I don't know if their plan is to run together, but 
I think they're going to be uh, up, up at the front of the race. Um, but you can't forget about, I mean, guys from Golden Ticket Races. You got Anthony Castalis from Black Canyon, Adam Mary from uh, Canyons, and Cole Watson. Uh, and then you have from UTMB of Matthew Blanchard. I mean, it's, it's going to be a loaded field. And I have my picks, I think, for maybe the top three. But beyond that, I mean, it could be anyone's day. Fill out your free trail fantasy. Come on, Adam. Anything you guys want to add about the, the men's contenders? I want to talk about dark horses too, but the, the main contenders in the race this I, weekend. I mean, I think for the first time in a number of years, we have a number of Chinese elites in the field, and I think that they should be on everyone's radar. They historically race really aggressively. Will that pan out? I don't know. Um, it could. It's a fast course. That does suit, I feel like, those runners. Um, I think someone to keep your eye on is going to be Shen Jingshen of the North Face team. Um, he was over here. Hopefully he's not listening to this. Um, but I think he's someone to keep, keep an eye on. I think that he's going to be an, an early factor in a race. And if, if, anything, if everything goes well, a, a factor for the podium for sure. And then his country mate, Luo Kanhua. Yeah. Um, he was here at, at the Canyons 100 mile, I believe. He was a podium finisher, and I think he's been in the country for a long, long time. A while training, So yeah. he might know the we course. We a 50 miler together a few weeks ago. There you go. <laughs> in Berlin, so. And he beat you. He beat me, yeah. <laughs> By a minute and a half as I was puking at the top of the last climb. But great guy. We had, I mean, we couldn't communicate with one another, but we shared that spirit, you know, and that's what makes trail running. Amazing. Let's talk about the dark horses. My dark horse that I wanted to mention is a name you already brought up, and that's Daniel Jones, I think, for our American audience who maybe is less familiar with the Asia-Pacific racing scene, Daniel Jones, maybe a new name, but who won in sort of dominant fashion at um, uh, home soil there in New Zealand at the Tarawera 100K earlier in the year, beating Hayden Hawks, incredibly talented, strong athlete, who I think is, has the benefit of flying under the radar, which I think for some people is exactly what they need. Any other sort of dark horses that you guys think are not getting enough attention? Well, I'll just toss one more non-dark horse uh, in there, Dakota Jones. Yeah. We all should be watching for him. Obviously, he's known to uh, most of us for his mountain credentials, but the last year or so, he's really proved his uh, sort of faster turnover credentials. He rode his bike here, um, and the last time he did that at Pikes Peak Marathon was also a successful experience for him, so um, not a dark horse. Yeah, his javelina, I think, was that like light bulb moment for many of us of like, oh, this guy could throw down on flat runnable stuff. Like, this is kind of scary. Yeah. Um, I think the one dark horse I want to throw into the mix, too, or I guess I've got two. And one was one I, I think I, I might have chosen them both last year, actually, as my dark horses. It's John Ray and Jeff Colt. Um, John had a really, really solid run last year, but I think the last 20 miles were pretty hard on him. He's had an amazing training block and is, like, I think, looking to, looking to improve on last year. Jeff was 11th here last year after having COVID, getting COVID 10 days before the race. Um, I like. I think both those guys will be factors. They run together a lot too. They've trained and raced together some. Like I think that I'm. I'm really curious to see how both those guys do. Also not a dark horse, but we have to throw him in the conversation. Cody Lind. His family has a huge history at this race. He's finished top ten. Um, there's his father uh, right there, Paul. Um, I think he's going to have a good day tomorrow. Like. Talk about a person who knows how to move their body on this course. And I've been told he's stupid fit. Shred ready, as they say. <laughs> yeah, another, another dark horse would might be uh, Adam Mary. He runs for Saucony, but you know, he did a similar race strategy and race schedule for the year that I followed last year, which was the Chuckanut 50K in March, Canyons 100K, 
in April, and then here we are, Western States. Um, but you know, we were on the world team together in November in Thailand, and he had a rough day there. But man, since then, you know, he's become a dad. He's he's got that dad strength, uh, and he's just really poured it on. I mean, he won Chuckanut in a pretty fast time. He got second at Canyons, and uh, it seems like he's had a really really good block in Boulder. So definitely uh, look out for him as well. Yeah, I think there's 20 guys that could be in the top 10. It's a little bit yeah, frustrating yeah, we, we to make picks. We can move on. One final name for me is is Tyler Green, a guy who always Obviously. flies under the radar, two-time top five finisher, including a podium performance two years ago. So Tyler Green. Another great character in the race who, who doesn't seek the spotlight and doesn't get a ton of attention, but who will absolutely be in the mix tomorrow. Let's talk about the women. Corinne, you want to get us started? Oh. With the contenders first With before the contenders we go to dark before horses. we go. Yeah, I was like, okay, I'm ready. Um, I mean, so interesting, different, uh, slightly different than the, the men's field is that our top returning finisher placed fifth last year in Emily Hoggood. We just interviewed Leah Yingling. Like I said, no one wants to be hunted by Leah Yingling. I think Emily is set up to have a really, really good race. I think she wants she wants to improve over last year, and I think the confidence of running in stride with Ruth Croft over the first 55 plus miles of the race was a big was a big confidence boost of like I belong here. Similarly, Keely Henninger had a very similar experience at Western States last year in the sense that she was like this can be my day, and got a taste of that. Had a horrible ankle injury that took her out of the race, but excited to see her back. Um, I mean, the rest of women's top 10 from last year, those seven, eight, nine spots are gonna be in the mix as well. Um, Kemi Brujas just had surgery, so that's why she's not here, F10 from last year. Um, Heather Jackson is gonna be a factor um, in the women's race. I'm really curious to see how she does. We just talked to Meg Morgan, but we'll maybe, she's my dark horse, so we'll talk more about her in a second got nervous. We probably should add into the conversation now our top women's co uh, competitors, Katie Scheid, Courtney DeWalter. 100%. Um, can we talk about the course record for a hot second? Is it going to happen tomorrow? It could. It could. I think we are optimistic, but not like naively optimistic. Does that make sense? I think like the predictions, I think, for the race is probably about 17 hours with the temps and conditions, but I do think that the women have historically been outperforming that over the last four editions of the race. Um, if anyone can do it, it's going to be someone like Courtney, but I think in a race like this, there's an opportunity for, for Courtney to be pushed by the likes of Katie Scheid, Keely Henninger, Emily Hoggood, um, etc. Eden, Eden Nelson, who we haven't talked about yet. Like, like Those women, like sometimes that course record performance, I don't know that it's gonna be Courtney off the front. Like I think the women's race is gonna be buoyed by this incredibly strong pack of women. So since Megan introduced the women's course record into the conversation, I think it's important that we add some context to that. This is from the 2012 race that you mentioned a short time ago, held by of course the great Ellie Greenwood in a sick fast time of 16 hours, 47 minutes. Nobody has been within 23 minutes of that course record set in 2012, now 11 years hence. Beth Pascal is the closest to come to that course record. That was two years ago in 2021, in a historically hot year. She ran 17 hours and 10 minutes. Do we think the women's course record is in play tomorrow? I'm going to say yes. I think it's going to happen. I think the, the paces will be slow at first, but I think some of those splits that we see after the halfway point are going to splits that we all put in our notebooks to be watching for the future. Yeah, and I think that once again, like we're a little bit like hedging our bets in the high country, but I was out 
clearing down trees between Robinson and, and Duncan on Tuesday. And like that entire climb's dry, for example. So it's not like they're gonna be on snow for 30 miles. Like we think there's maybe 10 miles of snow continuously-ish. And so it's like, I don't think they're gonna be slowed down for that long either. Like I think it's gonna be mid high country where we start to see more normal moves being made akin to 2019. I also think that, um I can't remember whom of you said it, but that pack mentality is really going to play into the, the women's pacing this year. When you compete with other people, in this case, when you compete with other women, you all rise higher. I think this is going to be a case where women are going to be with each other or within sight of each other, I mean, almost all the way through, and that always breeds faster times. I mean, Ellie Greenwood is an absolute maniac. The time that she ran, like, as you said, nobody has touched in variable conditions throughout the years. She ran all by herself, though. I mean, it was her versus the clock. So uh, women versus the clock versus each other. Like, let's see. Yeah, and I think of in uh, 2021 when Beth Pascal ran, I think it was 1710. I mean, it was, it was 101 degrees that day. Like, it was really hot. And, I mean, Beth, Beth Pascal is a beast, and so are a lot of the women in this field. I think given the cooler temperatures and that it's 85, I think they could definitely be quite a bit faster than that day. And, yeah, she was what, 23 minutes slower than the course record is what we said. So, yeah, I would, I would think there's a good chance. Yeah, I think there's going to be some movement at the front of the race early in which some people might be playing with this idea that the high country is going to be their strength scenario. And so I think that there might be some interesting characters kind of pushing at the front with the idea of, like, I personally think they're very fast on the flat, too. But I do think that we're going to see some people really pushing the pace and other people not being willing to let them go as early. And so it's going to bunch up a bit more at the front of the race. So I'm going to say something here that's sort of part of my predictions, and you guys can agree or disagree with me. But I think the men's race is more wide open than the women's race. I think in the women's race, the winner is going to come from the group of Courtney DeWalter, Katie Scheid, Eden Nelson, Keely Hanger. That's my personal prediction. So I, we don't need to necessarily comment on that, but also we want to talk about the dark horses before we get to, you know, maybe the, the times that we might anticipate on the course. Agree or disagree with me and maybe talk about some of the dark horses. Yeah, I think that those are four women that I've got at the top of my pile. I think I'd add Emily to that, just given her outstanding, like, first 60 to 78 miles last year. I think she's gone gone to correct a bunch of that. Um, my dark horse pick I mentioned very briefly, I think is Meg Morgan, I think anyone. She's the second youngest in the field at 25. It's her first 100 mile. I'm really excited to see her run. I got to watch her run a really smart race at Black Canyon. She performed like a veteran in the sport at that race in hotter conditions or as hot conditions as they're gonna see today. You, know, you never know. There have been, I mean, you won on your debut 100. That hadn't happened on the men's side in a, in a long time. It's happened more so more recently on the women's side. Um, she's a person that I think, like, she could be on the podium. She could have a really hard day, but she could also be on the podium. Not, also not a dark horse. Great performances here. Top 10 last year, Taylor Nellin. Um, she's a person who sort of hides from social media and um, being in, in front-facing, um, but... Like, I think she learned a lot last year. Hyper-talented athlete. I think she'll move up in the women's top 10 this year. I heard at one point she was just gnawing on, like, a mound of Sour Patch gummies that were stuck in her pocket. So I think that she's gone to the nutrition correction well and is ready to, to have better, better fueling and hydration throughout the race, which I think was kind of the, the one. It was her debut 100, too, last year. So curious to see what kind of knowledge she comes in with this year. Yeah, I, I keep thinking of Heather Jackson as my dark horse pick. I mean... 
she comes from a triathlon background and now in the gravel bike scene, but I mean, man, she just has a huge base and a huge background in endurance sports. Uh, she ran Havelina last year. I know she didn't, she didn't qualify for states there, but she did at Black Canyon this spring. And yeah, if you follow her, she just, and she's been racing all the time. She did the Dirty Kansas 200 mile race. She ran, she did the, uh, I'm blanking on the name, but there were like three different gravel biking races that were over hundred miles that she's done. So uh, if cycling translates to running, I would, I would watch out for Heather Jackson. I mean, this could totally revolutionize trail running training if Heather Jackson wins tomorrow. It'd be like, okay, who is uh, on the time trial bike for 13 hours on a Saturday morning, so. And I think she's somebody who we know how she is going to race tomorrow. Yeah. She's shown us her style in ultra running so far. She's already put on the record how she's planning to race tomorrow. She's going she's gonna to send it, and she's going to try to cover whatever move happens. It was so funny. We had her on the panel yesterday, and she was talking about how her aggressive style comes from the fact that she was always like one of the last women out of the water when she was racing Ironman triathlon. So she's like used to having to like hit the gas right out of the water. So. Anyway, she will definitely put on a show for us tomorrow. Let's talk about like predictions. I don't know if we want to predict winners, but maybe predicting times for whoever is uh, wants to get us started here. Like, what's it going to take to win on the course tomorrow? Do you think? Well, I mean, I think we're right now on the women's side. We're we're predicting that it could be. I think we're going to see, if not the fastest time ever, the second fastest time ever tomorrow. Is it going to be that course record? I think that there's a really good chance, but I do think it's going to take a sub 17. On the women's side, on the men's side, I think I'm leaning towards Tom's predictions there, where I think that there are men capable of running well under 15 hours. I think that the conditions are setting up pretty well for that, and I think that he's probably right that it's, it's not going to be a 14-hour year, but it's going to be maybe like a 14-30-hour year to be on that men's podium. Yeah, I think the top five women's... Top five women's fastest times in history are all under 17.30. I think my guess is that four out of five of those are going to be new times by the end of tomorrow night. Chills. Chills. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think, I think on the women's side, it'll be right around that 17-hour mark or low 17s or, like we said, maybe under. And then for the men, I mean, yeah, I, I saw a prediction that Tom Evans put where he thought the winner would be around 14.30 or 14.40. And I think he said 14.28. Oh, I think did that, he? Okay. He, was, he was very specific. Yeah, I, that man's a statistician. Like, I think, I think he's spot on. I think it'll be, yeah, in that range. But it also might be a year where we see two men go under 15. Two, I mean, it could be, it could be that competitive. Yeah, I was going to happen in, in 19. Yeah. yeah. I was going to three men under 15 that year. Which included Tom Evans in 14.59. So he... While he has, doesn't have the highest finish in the returning field, he um, has one of the fastest times in the returning field. And so that is, I think, that is a, a coin in his pocket. Yeah, I think that on the men's side, while a little bit more wide open in terms of who might end up being the champion, I think um, we might be able to see more people running times that start with 14 hours than we have in any other race before. I, I, we've been talking about pack mentality for the women's race, but I think pack mentality for the men's race is, is probably going to come into play too. I found Anne-Marie Madden on the infield of the track last year when we were signing off of the live broadcast to go catch a little bit of a rest. And I said, I would like to congratulate you on the fastest ever 11th place female. <laughs> and like, it was a horrible thing to say to her, but she also like was like, yeah, I, like she ran a time that, you know, historically, outside of the last, like, three years, would have been maybe good for third type of thing and was 11th. And I think that we're going to see something very similar happen tomorrow. 
in the last couple of years, we've seen sort of in the back half of the men's race and back half of the men's race for top 10, women's race for top 10, we've seen these races that come down to the last mile down from Roby Point and sometimes to a sprint on the track. I think we're going to see that in the men's race inside of the top five. There's going to be a, a sprint finish for a top five finish, possibly Ooh, podium. That's a bet. That's a bet that should be placed. I love that. <laughs> I don't have much to add. I would agree that the men's finishing time will probably be 14.30 or sub 14.30. Women's time, probably the second time we'll ever see a number in the 16s, which is amazing to think about with all the history at this race, this being the 50th Western States. Any closing remarks? Megan, where is Iron Far going to be on the course tomorrow? What can we expect from your guys' coverage? I Run Far is here doing its thing. We have about 15 correspondents who will be placing themselves all over the course, um, sometimes in aid stations, sometimes in random places on the trail. So runners, if you're watching this, watch for cameras sticking out of bushes. We look forward to watching the front, middle, back of the pack all weekend long. Follow at I Run Far on Twitter, and I'm sure you got the, the live coverage going on ironfar.com too. Great. Where are you going to be on the course, Brad? Yeah, I'll be, I'll be at the start. I'll be, I guess I'll be at all the key aid stations. So, yeah, the hope is to make it to Robinson Flat, but definitely uh, Forest Hill, the river, the finish. Maybe hanging out with you at the finish for a little while. Yes, yeah. you will be on set with us. That has already been booked, so don't try and back out of it. So. We have you on the record. Uh, any closing remarks, Chris? Oh, where are we going to be tomorrow? We're going to be sitting on the track. <laughs> we'll be on the track from 4 a.m. until 1 a.m. Yes. So if you want to come heckle us from a near or far distance, or bring us snacks. Bring them snacks. Bring us snacks. We'll be on the, uh, the track all day long tomorrow. Okay, in closing, if you'll indulge me, I'm gonna read something here that's really special that I think will get us all in the mood for Western States tomorrow. This is an op-ed that was written by Tony Rossman, who's a legend of Western States, a former longtime board member. This is an op-ed that he wrote to the Los Angeles Times back in 1985. So this is 38 years old, and it really, I think, speaks to the spirit of Western states. I'm gonna do my best to read in public. Don't make fun of me if I don't do great. This will probably take me three minutes, and I hope it sends us all into tomorrow ready for the entertainment that's ahead. So this is entitled, In a Race of Endurance, A Victory of the Spirit. Olympic Valley, California, shortly before five o'clock Saturday morning, a few hundred of us will present ourselves to the starting line of the Western states endurance run. A shotgun blast precisely on the hour will send us westward along the Western States Trail. 19,000 feet up, 21,000 feet down, 100 miles in distance. Our goal, to traverse the Sierra Nevada and the mighty canyons of the American River, arriving in the gold rush town of Auburn in under 24 hours. Our ostensible reward, the most coveted emblem of the endurance athlete and the symbol of the world's most demanding sports event, a sterling silver belt buckle that proclaims 100 miles, one day. This award of mere medal alone does not draw us back each year to those mountains and their task. The greater award is that of the spirit. Material return and public glory might explain the pursuit of other human ambitions, be they public office, corporate control, individual wealth, or even an Olympic championship. When this day is done, however, and the last Western States finisher enters Auburn's high school stadium, each runner will have celebrated a personal victory nobler in dimension. For the Western States 100 is terribly honest in its demands and rewards. During these two dozen hours in the wilderness, we will be governed apart from the world of political favors, hidden agendas, and orchestrated cheers. 
our number, which includes woodsmen, ranchers, nurses, investment bankers, mechanics, and computer engineers, will all be measured on the same scale. We will test ourselves against the mountains. Along the emigrant, emigrant trail of granite clefts, majestic forests, and pristine streams, we will feel the presence of the Paiute Indians, the mountain men, gold miners, and pioneer families. As morning gives way to afternoon in the lower elevations where oaks and grasses replace the tall pines of the ridges and where rivulets merge into the defined forks of the American, we will encounter the oppressive central California heat working its way up the canyons. When dark and coolness come, our way along the silent trail will be marked only by flashlight and the distant lights of Auburn. By the time we reach the finish, we will have found, both physically and mentally, as many valleys and peaks as mark the trail. For those who come to Auburn will arrive with rare grace. The runners who press through the weary and lonely hours can get through only if they are tough and at peace with themselves. But we could not endure without the unspoken support of our companions and the trail and the palpable support of friends who waited with aid at the checkpoints, paced us through the night, and kept us on the trail this day and months of training before. To the extent that an endeavor like this must finish with formal ceremony, Sunday afternoon we will find ourselves cleaned up, euphoric and exhausted at the Placer High School track. There, will, there we will celebrate the award of each buckle and plaque, but we will also openly celebrate those who didn't make it as far or as fast as planned. We know that between Olympic Valley and Auburn lurk snow crevasses, sharp rocks, bears, cougars, rattlers, skunks, darkness, and the extreme frontiers of the body and mind. Having encountered these before, each of us will affirm that we achieve more in victory or defeat than in staying home to risk neither. The highest award of Western States becomes a self-assurance that celebrates this event before it begins. In spite of the distinction of that silver buckle, and perhaps because of it, Western States proves that honor lies not so much in reaching the finish line, but in daring to arrive at the start. Tony Rossman, 1985, Los Angeles Times. Thank you for indulging me that. Thank you all for watching our live broadcast the last couple of days. Make sure you follow I Run Far, and make sure you log on to the Western States 100 YouTube channel at 4.14 a.m. tomorrow morning. We will go live at 4.15 a.m. We will see you there. Good luck to all runners.